Hey, everyone, and welcome to the All It Takes to Go podcast, the best place in the entire world, including all of Canada, to learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acuff, and today I'm joined by Daniel H. Pink. Who's that? I'm so glad you asked. Daniel's books have helped readers and organizations around the world rethink how they live and operate. He's the author of the New York Times bestsellers, A Whole New Mind, Drive to Sell as Human, and Win. His books have sold millions of copies. That's millions. That's a lot of books. And have been translated into 42 languages and have won multiple awards. He lives with his family in Washington, D.C., and I can't wait for you to hear this interview. He's got a brand new book out called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. And he's really going to give you some counterintuitive information about how we tend to think about regret and why it's wrong and what we can do with it. So I can't wait for you to hear this interview. But first, a quick message about the sponsor of today's episode. Whether your engines have been running all winter long or you've been hibernating through the cold, let's talk about a food that will keep you going all season, macadamia nuts. Imagine enjoying macadamia nuts without having to go on a mission to find them among their distant cousins in the mixed nut package. A handful of these naturally buttery flavor bombs has the perfect calorie breakdown of proteins, healthy fatty acids, fiber, and a couple of carbs so you can snack without throwing yourself out of whack. You can get freshly roasted macadamia nuts in a variety of snack sizes from Uguazi Macadamia. But you won't just get better macadamia nuts from Uguazi. You'll also help build a better world. Uguazi means knowledge in Zulu because this isn't just another nut brand. Uguazi is a nonprofit whose primary mission is providing quality and affordable college education to African students. Uguazi doesn't just give a percentage of profits to charity. All the profits from their 14,000 macadamia nut trees and their freshly roasted macadamia sales belong to Uguazi International Christian University, a fully accredited nonprofit and Christian university in the kingdom of Eswatani. Order your next snack from buymacadamias.com. That's B-U-I-M-A-C-A-D-A-M-I-A-S.com. When you use the code John Acuff, let's spell that too, that's J-O-N-A-C-U-F-F. You'll get a free snack size package of roasted and lightly salted macadamia nuts with any order. That's buymacadamias.com. Use the code John Acuff. You can help build a better world while enjoying a healthy yet tasty snack of Uguazi macadamia nuts. All right. So you've heard from our sponsor. Now we're about to jump into my interview with Daniel H. Pink, but I need to tell you, I made the classic mistake of not hitting record for the first like 17 seconds. So you didn't miss much. Um, all I did was thank him for endorsing my book. I wrote a book called Soundtracks. He endorsed it. So kind of him. I thanked him for that. And then I asked him a question about why regret? Why this topic? It feels like the last few years have been like a regret factory um, with the pandemic and everything. Why did you pick this topic? And then you'll hear him start talking about that answer. So Number one, my bad. I looked up in horror and instantly got sweaty and was like, oh, I haven't hit record yet. Ah! And then I hit record. So you'll hear Dan jump in. 
I don't want you to miss anything. So there's my little fix my mistake disclaimer. So enjoy the interview that we're just going to jump right into with Daniel H. Pink. It's really hard. It's, it's incredibly time consuming. It's torturous. And so you have to pick something that you're deeply, 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 deeply interested in, that you're willing to live with, as you say, for years. But then even beyond that, uh, I had a conversation yesterday where someone mentioned a book, wanted to talk about a book I'd written 20 years ago. So you live with it forever. So there's a very, very high bar for what you write about. The reason that this topic passed the bar in this case was that I realized that I had regrets of my own. And one of the catalysts was m- one of my daughters graduating from college and my kind of just wondering where the hell all the time went yep. and looking back and realizing that I had regrets and then telling people about them. And instead of people recoiling, people actually leaned in. They actually wanted to hear my regrets and they wanted to share theirs. And that's amazing because of our you know our instincts about regret is like, oh, we got to avoid it at all costs. And mm-hmm. and so that's and, and then I looked at, at some of the existing research, thought it was really interesting, realized there was a couple of research projects I could do on my own and said, all right, I can live with this for a few years. I want to live with this for a few years because I want to crack the code. I want to figure out what's going on here. I, I love that approach. I often say that that my first draft of any book I write is a Dear John letter because <laughs> it's me talking to me about something that I'm trying to figure out. Amen. Let me let me be your hallelujah chorus for that for any aspiring writers out there. I, I agree with that more than you realize. I mean, I have this sort of rule in my head where I will not write a book that I would not if someone else had written it, I would not want to read it the first week it's out. That's a great that's a great rule. You know, like like uh, or be like willing to stand in line for it because the bar has to be super high because it's so difficult writing books. Have you ever gotten into a project and realized I'm not passing that test? This isn't, I thought yeah. it was a topic well, on the outset. I got a little in and realized, nope, this isn't one that's feeding me and it's not going to feed other people. Yes. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. This is one reason why I write, I mean, I'm insane. So that's, you know, you're my, other people's mileage may vary, but it's one reason why I write very long book proposals before I commit to doing a book. Uh, I will write 45 you know, 50 page proposals for a book. And the reason for that is not that I'm a masochist. The reason for that is that it's a test. If because if I can't sustain a 40 page book proposal, then there's no way I can sustain yeah. a book itself. And so one time I actually a few years and this is a while ago now, uh, 15 years ago, maybe even longer than that, uh, I sent my family away. My wife and I have three kids. I sent my family away around December to go visit my in-laws and said, All right, guys. I'm going to take two weeks. I'm going to go into the cave and I'm going to write this book proposal. And then after about eight days, I called my wife and I said, I got some good news and some bad news. The good news is that you guys can come home now. The bad news is that I realized this is not a book. This is not a book I want to write. and It's not a good book. And I need to abandon this. Um, And so but I, I think that, again, people have different views on this. My view is that if you're not in love, don't do it. Yeah. If I'm bored writing it, you're going to be bored reading it. Amen. So that's my, that's one of my simple. And if I, I, if I give it to my wife, you mentioned your wife, does she read the manuscripts during the manuscript stage? Where does she, like when she's gonna, you know, look at the book at what stage is she doing that? Well, if I tell you the answer to that question, your listeners, John, are going to think either my wife is a lunatic or a saint, and maybe she's both. Okay. So, so, 
It's worse than you know. Here's what happens. So she reads everything that comes out of this office. I'm talking to you yeah. from my office here in Washington, D.C. She reads everything that comes out of this office. And I don't think that's that, that strange. Mm-hmm. However, for all of my books, she sits in a chair. I'm pointing now for those of you, you know, John and I are talking via video, but there's a chair right over there. She will sit in that chair and she will read the book to me at different stages out loud. And then I will read the book to her out loud. So not only does she read everything in general, she reads everything out loud. But if that weren't bad enough, she actually listens to everything read out loud. That That is intense. I will read to my wife, but I, I remember Eric Larson, amazing writer, said that he yeah. needs to be out of state when his wife is reading his manuscripts, that he can't be in even in the even in the same state. And he's dreading her writing Z, 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 like snooze on this. And my wife walked in one day and said, I've read what you've written. Do you want compliments or feedback? I thought nice. that was such such a good clarifying question. So I'm always curious how different people do it. But I, I did love this book. And I one of the things I loved about it was you addressed the popular but incorrect philosophy of no regrets. Right out of the gate, you jumped into that. It's it's a really popular tattoo. It's in, you know, it's Instagram. Why do you think it's so persuasive, like pervasive and persuasive, that idea of no regrets is a goal, no regrets is a goal. I'm gonna try to live a life with no regrets. Well, I mean, I think it's I think it's okay to try to live a life with no regrets to sort of in a forward seeking way. Uh, I think it's hard. But um, what worries me more are people who look backward and say they have no regrets. That's dangerous. Um, If you if you get to a point in your life at any uh, just about any age and you say, no, I have no regrets of anything that I've done. That's delusional. And 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 I think that the reason people maintain the delusion is is a few things. I think it's a very astute question. I think part of it is that we have, in some ways, over-indexed on positivity. We think that we have to be positive all the time. And it's very important to be positive. Positive emotions are enormously important. But we can't have only positive emotions because negative emotions, we need some because they're very instructive. And our most common negative emotion and most instructive negative emotion is regret. And I think that sort of we maintain the performance um, in part because we think that's the right thing to do, but also because we don't know how to deal with negative emotions. Mm. No one ever taught us. We've been taught. So, so what happens is we think, oh, negative emotion, you got to be positive. And then you ignore it. Mm. And then when you can no longer ignore it, since you're ill-equipped to deal with it, it ends up hijacking you. Mm. And what we need to do is we need to actually think about our negative emotions. And, and so what bugs me, I mean, you know, from reading the book is that, you know, we, there's no regrets philosophy seems like an act of courage, but it's not. What courage is actually staring your regrets in the face and doing something about them. Yeah, I'm always amazed how educational a regret is or a fear. I think the, I, I push back all the time when people say you can live fearless, you can live fearless, you can live fearless. It's crazy. Only if you stay stuck and don't try new things ever. Every time I do something new, I'm met with new fear because it's new. Now, I can choose to learn from it, listen to it, but not act on it or let it make all my decisions. I think you're right. I think some of that is this toxic positivity that you always have to be positive and always have to lean forward. Because I started to think about what are other popular miscues about regret? And I think another one that I see all the time is, in the end, you'll only regret the chances you didn't take. I see that everywhere. What is your, having done all this research, your interpretation of that? 
I think there's some truth to that, actually, mm-hmm. on that one. I don't think on any of these things, when we're talking about sort of complex human behaviors and emotions, I don't think like there's a single right answer for every human being at mm-hmm. all. But um, I, I think there's some truth to that. And I'll tell you why. I went out and collected 16,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. So this massive database of regret. And what I heard over and over again were a lot of regrets about that. I heard a lot of regrets about being at a juncture in life. You have a choice to play it safe or take the chance. People who play it safe and don't take the chance end up regretting it. And it doesn't matter the domain of life. It can be starting a business. A lot of people regret not starting businesses. It could be not asking somebody out on a date. It could be not traveling. Um, and so I do think that that one of the core regrets that people have is not taking a chance. Now, there are plenty of people who take a chance and it doesn't work. And some of them regret that, but not nearly as much as you think. Huh. And so I think there is I think there is I think there is a germ of truth in that in that um, notion. So of the two, no regrets and the only regrets you regret are the ones you didn't take. You would say that one has more truth in it than the idea of you can live a no regret life. Absolutely. Right, okay. right, right. Okay. Um, I, I don't think it's true. The only regret you have are the chances you didn't take because we have, because I mean, it's a great question. It actually goes to the heart of what we know about the architecture of regret, about how it works emotionally and cognitively. That is, we can sort of think about two kinds of regret. We have regrets of action and regrets of inaction, regrets of what you did and regrets of what you didn't do. And what the research shows is that regrets of inaction absolutely outnumber regrets of action. But we still have plenty of regrets of action. And that ratio tends to change over age. That was when we're younger, we have about equal numbers of regrets of action and inaction. Mm-hmm. As we age, the, the gap widens a bit so that we have more inaction regrets than action regrets. But people have plenty of regrets about what they did. People have huge, I mean, huge regrets about bullying other people, about cheating. Mm-hmm. Um, people have regrets about, you know, saying the wrong thing to someone and damaging a relationship. You touched on the research a second ago. It's an amazing amount of research, both the American Regret Project and the World Regret Survey. You talk about you're insane. Like you went deep on this. I'm curious, was it heavy ever? Like reading through all those regrets, like was that heavy for you? You know, it's a great question and it's going to sound weird, but it wasn't. And in fact, it was in some ways the opposite. This is the thing about regret is that the flip side of it is that it tells us what people value in life. If I have all these regrets, I mean, hundreds of regrets about people bullying uh, other other kids in school. And this is, you know, and and talking to them on the talking to them on Zoom in follow up interviews and having them break into tears about bullying 20 years ago, 30 years ago. That they Uh, had bullied other people. Yeah. So they regretted their actions. Absolutely. Gotcha. Some people regret not being bold and standing up to bullies. That's another bullying. But but far more people regretted being the bully. And they're bothered by 20 years later, 30 years later. I actually find that kind of heartening. Uh, to me, it's like, God, okay, so you did something wrong and you're still bugged by it 30 years later? Okay, good for you. That's good. All right? It, I think it means it's like, hey, we. it's like sort of ennobling. It's like, wow, people actually want to be good. People want to do the right thing. And when we don't do the right thing, many, much of the time, not all the time, and many of us, not all of us, feel pretty crappy about it. And that's a good thing, I think. It means that, hey, we're, we're at some level, we're wired to be good. Uh, and, and there's I remorse believe, and there's growth. Right. And, exactly. I yeah. exactly. Well, that's another that's a that's a great point, too. I mean, you're taking it to a to a new dimension here because I'm just saying it's like just simply the reaction itself mm-hmm. is heartening because it suggests that people want to be good. What you're saying is that if you then extract a lesson from it, you actually become better. And that mm-hmm. is even more true. And that's one of the things about regret is that, you know, it's our most common negative emotion, but it's also our most instructive 
if we do it right. You know, we have to think about regret as a teacher, not as like a meaningless stranger who passes by whom you can ignore Mm -hmm. and not as like St. Peter standing before the gates of heaven, passing judgment on your worthiness, but as like, hey, it's a teacher. I'm here to teach you something. So how do you learn from the lesson without letting it become your identity? So, or in other words, I'm able to extract the wisdom and apply it to today. Yesterday teaches today, Yes, but I don't let yesterday define today and tomorrow. Before you get to the lesson, you have to do, you have to do a couple of other things. And, and the first thing that you should do is, is how you look at yourself inward. All right. And, and again, I don't want to sound gooey because I'm not a touchy feely guy, but the science is. Science is yeah. pretty clear here, all right? So you have to look inward. And when we look at our mistakes, we often have two different routes to go. One of them is self-esteem. Hey, I'm awesome anyway. And the other one is, oh my God, I'm the worst person in the world, all right? Self-criticism. Neither one of those is a good idea. The better idea is built on the work of Kristen Neff at the University of Texas, and it's called self-compassion. And it's a gooey term built on a solid foundation of research. And what self-compassion says is that you should treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. So when we make mistakes, the way we talk to ourselves is often so brutal, so cruel, we would never talk that way to another person, right? So treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Recognize, and I hate to say this to people because it hurts their feelings a little bit, but you're not that special. Like, <laughs> yeah. think, I mean, seriously, think about, yeah. I mean, that's what I think. It's that, I, I've tried to use that for myself. It's like, okay, do you think like, okay, let's say you have a regret about bullying or a regret about not traveling. You think you're the only person with that regret? No way. You're like it's part of the human condition. And then also to your point, John, it's a very, very good point. It's like you have to ask yourself, does this regret, this one mistake fully define you as a human being? Does this one moment in all of your years on the planet fully define who you are? And the answer is, of course not. And so you have to sort of, you know, practice self-compassion. And then the other thing that you can do before extracting the lesson, which is really important, is disclosure. Uh, I was blown away by people's willingness to disclose. And it started to make sense to me when I looked at the research because disclosure is a form of unburdening. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. The other thing about disclosure for negative emotions, and again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, no one ever taught us how to do with negative emotions. Mm -hmm. So with with negative emotions, they're blobby and amorphous and feel really bad. But by talking about them, or even writing about them for ourselves, we take this amorphous blob and convert it into concrete words. And those are less fearsome. We begin making sense of it. And the other thing about self-disclosure is that we think that people will like us less when we just, we disclose our failures and vulnerabilities. They like us more. Yeah. And so you have to basically say, okay, like sort of let yourself off a hook a little bit, treat yourself with a little more compassion, disclose it to unburden and make sense of it. And then you can begin the, to extract a lesson from it. It's so true that when a friend discloses something, I think they're so brave. I, I admire what they did. When I feel the need to, I feel I'm about to wreck their impression of what John Acuff is and the caricature of who I am, whatever the, you know, and I feel the opposite. And so it's, it's so funny we do that. Well, I mean, there's a, in the world of psychology, there is a term for that. And it is a, it is a powerful impediment to us doing the right thing or doing sensible things, which is, which is pluralistic ignorance, right? That's the, that's the, that's the phrase, pluralistic ignorance. We say, we, we basically say, well, I believe this, yeah. but I'm so specially unique and enlightened that no one else, uh-huh, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so, I mean, a classic example of this is, you know, I mean, I, I, I write about science and I, and I read about science and I try to learn about science. 
let's say you go to a, a lecture, you know, about some aspect of science, and let's say it's somewhat complicated, and they'll say, do you have any questions? And what happens is that someone's thinking, I don't understand this part of it, but they don't want to say that. Yeah. Because they think the fact that other people aren't asking questions means that they understand it and they don't want to look bad. But the fact that other people aren't asking, other people are thinking in the same way as they are, you know, they say, well, I'm unique. I'm the only one who doesn't understand it. I don't want to embarrass myself by saying I don't understand. But everyone else is there saying, I don't understand. And so you end up with a state of confusion, rather than a state of enlightenment, because people don't, you know, I, I there was a journalist years ago who gave this advice. I thought it was pretty funny for writers. He said something like, Always extrapolate from your own experience. You're not that special. Yeah, that it's a hundred percent true. And to, to that asking questions part, that's why whenever I have a speaking client that says, "Hey, we want to do thirty minutes of Q and A," I always say, "That's a lot of Q and A." Because there's that temptation, especially if you're sitting next to your boss, the ROI oh. you start to do of like, if I ask the wrong question, if I say something wrong, and so. You know, so whenever somebody goes, we got a really talkative audience. So we need like an hour of Q&A. I think, uh, let's let's do 15 minutes and then be pleasantly surprised when it turns into 20. But if we start with an hour, that's that's a lot of pressure for that room. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is one of the things on uh, that, that virtual events have, I, I think, yeah. done a good job on in that in that with the um, in virtual events, if people actually type in their questions and submit it in writing you actually end up with more thoughtful questions. Mm. You end up hearing from the quiet people and it becomes less performative. So people's, people aren't raising their hands to ask a question to impress their boss. Yeah, to look smart, to yeah. say, look how, look how well I listen. Right. We, we touched on it a little, um, but out of the project, out of the you know, American Regret Project, the World Regret Survey, you come up with these four core human regrets. So you move beyond just the layer because a lot of people bucket them as, there's family regrets, there's yeah. career regrets, and you moved a deeper layer beyond that. Can you talk about what those four kind of sure. core regrets you saw? So in my quantitative survey, the American Regret Project, where I did a big survey, I asked people to list their regret and then put it into exactly those buckets. And I found that people regret a lot of stuff. Um, and uh, But then when I looked at the qualitative stuff, these 16,000 regrets, I realized something else was was going on. And so as I was saying before about like the, those boldness regrets that I were talking about before are a good example of that. I got bunches of people who regret not studying abroad in college. Among Americans who went to college, you could start a business. That's my greatest regret from college. I did a, I did a three weeks in Costa Rica. My wife did like a paradise semester in London and still like she practically met C.S. Lewis and ate scones constantly. And like <laughs> and I, I spent three weeks living under the stairs like Harry Potter in a house in Costa Rica yeah. full of spiders. And anytime I think about that, I think sophomore year, I had my chance, Dan. I had my chance. It's well, so funny you mentioned that. One. You know, I mean, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you're not that special because we have a lot of people <laughs> with that regret to the point where for all of you. ACUF listeners looking for a side hustle, I'm telling you, there is a business to run trips for people who regret not studying abroad in, oh, in God. So I'm, I'm, I, am, I am dead serious about that. I'm not going to start that business, but I think it is absolutely a business yeah. that people could start because it's so prevalent. But that the, the point is like, that's an education regret. Uh, if you have a regret about not asking somebody out on a date years ago, and I got a lot of those, that's a romance regret. And then if you have a regret about not starting a business, that's a career regret, right? But they're all the same regret. It's a regret about if only I'd taken the chance. And that's the point is that deep down, there are these four core regrets. One of them are what I call foundation regrets, which are regrets about people 
not taking care of their health, not saving money. That regret is if only I'd done the work. Bold news regrets are if only I'd taken the chance. Moral regrets are if only I'd done the right thing. And connection regrets are if only I'd reached out. Over and over again, these are the regrets that people express. And to me, they show in a weird way what we value most in life. And and you said something very interesting at the top of the show, John, about how the last two years have been a regret factory. And, and I think it's a lovely way to put it. And I think if we look at the output of that regret factory, it actually is telling us what to do next, because these four core regrets tell us what people value the most. You know, if we know what they regret the most, we know what they value the most. And what they value is, I don't think it's a gigantic surprise. What they value is stability. That's foundation. Mm -hmm. They value people want to lead a psychologically rich life and do something. That's boldness. People want to be good. That's, that's a moral regret. And we want love, connection to other people. And, that's, and, and I think that so the output of that regret factor you talked about gives us some clues about what to do when um, we come out of this nonsense. Well, and I've been talking to a number of companies. I've probably done 50 or 60 events in the last year. I've been amazed how many of them are saying we didn't know how important it was for us to be in the same space. They said, we kind of, we, you know, we didn't understand the value of connection. We didn't under, and there's a regret there. Now they're going, okay, how do we get some of that back? Knowing that there's a lot of people that have said, wow, I get to work from home. I don't have to commute. I live in Connecticut. I don't have to drive to New York, whatever. What do you think are some, some specific regrets that have popped out over the last two years? It's an interesting question. I, I don't know whether there are different regrets that emerged because of the state that we were in. Mm-hmm. I think that, that your way of thinking of it is in some ways more accurate in that it created the conditions to produce regrets. I don't, so that is the substance of them. I don't think it is, is any different in the pandemic and, and elsewhere. I just think that the conditions allowed us to create those kinds of regrets. I, I saw very few pandemic-specific regrets. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few people who regretted not reaching out to someone who that later had COVID. But I have a lot of those regrets anyway, you know, about other times and other times in people's lives. So I, I didn't see anything in the, in the substance of the regret that I think is wildly different. But I think that the opportunity of the I mean, call, I mean, maybe it's an opportunity. The conditions create allowed us to actually reflect a lot in the last two years. And when people reflect, you invariably look back. And when you look back, if you're a human being, you think about some of your regrets. What what would you say? are signs that somebody's not willing to engage in the negative emotions. So, you know, maybe they're listening to this going, oh, wait a second. I don't, you know, now that I think about this, and, and I would just say as a personal example, um, my counselor who has a PhD and just brilliant wrote a book called The Voice of the Heart and eight, seven of the eight voices, I would go, these are negative. Like how is like regrets, not a fun voice. Like I want the voices to be happy, joy. And that was something I initially said to him. He said, no, 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 they're all educational. They're all teaching you. Anger is teaching you what you're really passionate about. And so if you're somebody listening to this right now and you're going, wait a second, I think Dan's talking to me. What are some signs that you're not dealing with regret or some of these other negative emotions that maybe you've lumped into? These are bad. I can't talk about them. What are some signs? I think one sign would be if you legitimately don't believe you have regrets and there are some people like that and the weight into that is so I, I mean in my survey I, I had a feeling because of this no regrets philosophy is so prevalent in my quantitative survey I asked people a question about regret without saying the r word I said how often do you look back at your life and wish you had done something differently 
So that's a question that I ask people who say they have no regrets. Okay, so do you ever look back on your life and wish you had done something differently? Well, yeah, you know, and I mean, I even had people who filled out the world regrets survey, the qualitative thing saying, I don't have any regrets, but I cheated on my wife and I feel really bad about it. You know, <laughs> that is a, the definition of a regret. That, I mean, like, I'm not, ta- that's not a one-off, John. That's like, I had so many people say, I don't have any regrets and then prepared to tell me the regrets. So, yeah. so part of it is like, okay, just think a little harder whether you have regrets. The other thing is, and I think this is really important and it goes to what your counselor were saying is, is that um, regret hurts and it's instructive. Mm-hmm. It's instructive in part because it hurts, but you can't disentangle the two. If you want the instruction, you got to have a little of the hurt. So the other question I would ask people, it's like, well, tell me about a time you felt unpleasant or uncomfortable or in slight emotional pain. And, and, and you can usually tease that out of people. So that's, that's what I would do. So like, when, when, when's the last time you felt uncomfortable, uneasy, and slight emotional pain? And then also just like, okay, so you don't have any regrets. Well, tell me about a time that you look back in your life and wish you had done things differently. That, you know? I love there's, that some, there's, there's some people who will fight you. Not that many, actually. Yeah. There's some people who will fight you. will say, well, every... Everything that I did was a learning experience. So yeah, I regret going into business with that shyster, but I learned that, you know, I need to do more due diligence before I embark on a business project. I'm like, okay, you have a regret and you learn from it. And I think that's the treasure. I, I, I want to make sure that the audience is able to hear the treasure that's hidden inside regret. We've talked a, a number of times about like, okay, here's some of the negativity, but what do you get when you deal with regret? So I read this book and I go, you know what? Okay, I'm willing. I, you know, I've, I've had a weird relationship with the R word, but I, I love the way Dan Pink writes. I know how researched it is. And I know that if I actually do what he's talking about, there's treasure in that. What would you, if, if you had to answer that question, the treasure of regret is? Uh, well, in a, in a word, learning. Okay, so it, it helps you learn. Uh, but more specifically, what it helps you do is that it, it dramatically improves your decision making. And on an even more technical level, it makes you a better negotiator. If you reflect on your negotiations and regret the things, the mistakes that you make, you become a better negotiator. It helps our problem solving. You think about your pro- certain kinds of problem solving, you regret what you did, learn from that, it makes you a better problem solver. There's, there's evidence showing that executives who do this are better strategists. Uh, and so it improves your problem solving skills, it improves your decision making, it improves your negotiation, uh, and it also actually can sharpen your sense of meaning. Um, and, and that ends up being in some ways one of the most important things. Like for instance, one of the stories in the book is this woman, uh, this young woman, 30, not that young, 30 years old in, in Arizona who realized that she had a regret. Her grandparents would come to visit her two months a year. The grandparents lived in Indiana, she lived in Arizona. Her grandparents would come two months a year. And when she was a kid, she hated it. She was like, what are you doing here? You're intruding. It's like, leave me alone. I don't want to talk to you. And then her grandparents passed away. And she's like, crap, I blew it. Like, I really regret that I didn't talk to them and learn from them. And and as a consequence, she actually said, I can't let that happen with my parents. So she felt terrible. She used that spear of negativity to learn and grow. And And she does this thing with her parents where she... It's a it's some kind of a service where you they they send your they they send people a question every month and then people respond to that question and they compile it into a book because she doesn't want to miss her parents' stories and and all and so so for her regret was that spear of regret that terrible feeling it felt bad but if you look at it as like a teacher and the teacher is telling me meaning matters in your life and don't blow with your parents the way you blew with your grandparents 
I I see that in my own life uh, fairly regularly. If I say yes to something I know I'm supposed to say no to, and then I show up when it actually happens full of like white hot rage, I'll stop and go, why do I regret that I said yes to this? And how do I say no to this in the future? Because if I don't learn from that moment, I just keep out of obligation or wanting people to like me, whatever the whatever the thing is that's motivating me. If I show up furious, I should pause for a second and say, I fully regret saying yes to this. It's going to happen again. I'm going to be asked to do this again, like hosting events. I'm terrible at hosting events. I like to keynote. Hosting is a completely different sequence. It's, it, you know, moving pieces. I'm terrible at it. But if I say yes to it and keep saying yes and keep being frustrated, I haven't stopped to learn from the, the regret. Um, and so for me, that's a simple example of, oh, I should learn from why do I feel this way driving to this thing or showing up for this thing? I regret it. Do I, do I want to regret it in the future too? Or do I want to learn from the regret? Because I think that's what's interesting is if you don't learn from the regret, you repeat the re- regret. Exactly. So, so if you say, I have no regrets, here's a negative feeling coming at me. Oh, that's not a teacher. That's a stranger. Ignore it. You end up yeah. doing it again. I'll give you re- your listeners one, one of my favorite techniques. I, I learned it a few years ago from Tina Seelig at, at Stanford, which is what she calls a failure resume. You know, we all have our resumes and they, they sparkle and you look at people's, you know, LinkedIn profiles and you think like they're the second coming of Christ and that music should be playing in the background every time you open up their LinkedIn profile. And so Tina says, do the opposite create a, a resume of your failures, your setbacks, your mistakes. And I did that. And what I discovered, is, it, the way I do it, I do it slightly more systematically, uh, is that so you list your all your failures, setbacks, mistakes, and things like that. Professional. Mm. I, I only did it professionally. Yeah. And then, then you say, what lesson did I learn from it? And then in the third column, what are you going to do next? And what I found in that second column for me, well, it was interesting. So I found in the second column for me was that, in many cases, I was making the same two mistakes over and over again. And one of them was exactly the mistake that you were talking about, John, which is that I would agree to do things that I wasn't 100% into. And as a consequence, would do a terrible job and feel a sense of resentment that, that someone had forced me into it when that person was me. And so the, the, the lesson that I extract from that is almost like the, 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 the famous Derek Sivers lesson, which is like, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. Yep. And as glib as that sounds, for me, I was actually doing a bad job because I was agreeing to things that I wasn't fully behind and wasn't fully into. And a lot of my mistakes and setbacks were because of that. And so I've avoided do I've tried to avoid doing that. Yeah. And that, that's been a, a big lesson for me. I love that idea of a failure resume. I want to I want to shift for a couple of minutes before we wrap up into your writing process because yeah. you, you write really successful books. It's something you're passionate about. If you had to guesstimate roughly how long it takes you to write a book, because I get that question all the time. Is it years? And then is it is your process that there's no average week? I get that. But you're you know, I divide the mornings and afternoons and I write all morning because that's when I'm at my peak. And then I run the business of being Daniel Pink in the afternoon. How long does it take you to write a book and how how do you structure your writing life? OK, uh, so let me take the first one. It usually takes me. Two or three years to research and write a book, um, usually. Yeah, about yeah, usually between two and three years of, okay. of work. Um, I end up doing a fair amount of research and that's pretty time consuming. So that's it. That's at that one level. The next level down is that is that the way I do the research is that I do enough research that I look 
try to begin to see the shape of the book, the structure of the book. I'm a big believer that structure is everything. If you get the structure right, you can you can more or less figure it out. And so I try to do enough research to where I get to the point where I where I can sort of see the structure. And then I do a little bit of writing and try looking for weaknesses in the structure. And then I go back and do some more research and then solidify the structure and then move on from there. Now, when it comes to the actual writing, writing, if I were to come into the office and, and write only when I was inspired and moved to write, yeah. I would never get anything done. Mm -hmm. And so on that, as we're going sort of more concrete, um, I'm pretty methodical in that I will uh, come to my office, this office from where I'm talking to you in the morning, usually get in around 830, somewhere around there. I'm not insanely later, insanely early. And I will give myself a quota of words for the day. It varies. Sometimes it's 500. Other times it's like 900. Every once in a while, a thousand. I, I try to give myself a number that I can, that I know I can make or that I hope I can make. And I don't do anything else until I hit that number. I don't turn on my email. I typically don't bring my phone in the office. I, I clear out any scheduling for them for, for meetings. And I just, every single day I show up and I crank out those words. And then I do it the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And so that's how I managed to get writing done day to day. And then in the after in the afternoons, I do, you know, my, um, you know, the interviews and um, research, additional research and other kinds of administrivia that one has to do to get through the day. Are you a listen to music while you write guy? No. Okay. So silent. Okay. There's a theme emerging here, which is that I'm nuts. I'll tell yeah. you how. I'll I tell love you. this theme. That might okay. be the title of the podcast. It might be nuts. <laughs> well, with I'll show you again. This is, this is, okay. So, so, so I work in a refurbished garage here and it's, it's, it's very well constructed and hermetically sealed. So it's quite. It doesn't quiet. look like a garage. It looks like you're on the top of somewhere beautiful in DC. I'm just, oh yeah, yeah. That's a garage. Yeah. A lot of, yeah. A lot of boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, were those uh, boxes pretty, full of awards? I'm assuming. Yeah, Just that's like pretty much. It's all my. It's like I got my Heisman Trophy in one of those, and <laughs> yeah, my Nobel exactly. in the other a lot one. Of yeah. People's Choice Awards. I yeah, mean, it's not yeah, yeah, the yeah, best yeah. award, but yeah. it is an award. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, the Grammy is in storage. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, no, no. Well, I, I can tell you about that too if you want to know about those boxes because uh, that's another insanity. So my office is is quite quiet, but that's not good enough for me because I like silence. So I will sometimes put in. When I write, put in earplugs. Yep. Okay. Yeah, this, this is getting crazy. Oh, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> but I will also, I'm wheeling my chair here. Hold on. Can I reach it? I will also, sometimes. I hope this is a helmet. I hope you're about my, to show me a helmet. In my, in my very quiet office, in my residential neighborhood, yep. alone in my hermetically sealed office, I have earplugs <laughs> and headphones. I love it. I love it. And they're worn out. You can see that there's yeah. been some books written in that. Those, oh, those yeah, headphones yeah, yeah. No, have these seen headphones, some life. These, these, these noise-canceling headphones get used. So I cannot write to... Um, those are Bose, aren't they? Yeah. I love my Bose headphones. I, what? Yeah, what? there you go. A couple of there, writers oh, with I, silver You have a newer Bose model, and, it looks like. I have a new... I worked for Bose. I worked for Bose. I, I uh, was part of their team that wrote advertising for them. Oh, nice. All right. I, I think Bose is a great project, product. I have... Um, uh, also, my running headphones are the 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 Bose. They're not in, they're in my house. Are the the Bose buds that are oh, on yeah. the cord? I yep. love those. I've got a pair of those too. Yeah. So that's good for maybe that's how you write books. You have to wear uh, Bose headphones. And a lot of NFL co a lot of NFL coaches have those too. Oh so, yeah, yeah, totally. So we're we're almost athletes as well. 
I, I mean, I, I would I would take away almost. I think we are athletes. Okay, there, yeah. let's remove almost. You mentioned running. What are some of your other goals? So, and and Go. or just tell me your philosophy on goals. Are you a? I mean, it's January and I got a written list and a checklist and a chart on the wall. Is it? I've got some categories in my life where I try to drink enough water and and run enough miles. What, how do you approach goals? Hmm. Less systematically than you do, apparently. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, your earplugs <laughs> is my chart. I am a goal. Like I like. Dan, I'm going to, you just tilted your camera. That is my writing the next book chart. I've mapped out the next 500 hours because I'm curious. Because my thing is, if you over-dramatize an already difficult goal, it makes it hard to accomplish. So when I meet people that go, I want to write a book, and I'll go, why? And they'll go, because then my dad will know I made the right choice in life. And and I'm whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, that's not what a book, like, that's too much pressure on a book. Like, in the same way you're not special, I say, it's just a book. It's just a book. If I put X amount of hours, at the end of it, I get a book. So yeah, I'm systematic, but what's your approach to goals? I tend to be better off when I do far fewer things that I care deeply about. And so mm. for me, so so my goal for the last couple of years was to write a really good book. It's hard to sustain the motivation to do that if you have one transcendent goal all the time. So I'll give you, I'll give you something else. I have it up on my whiteboard right over there. And again, forgive me because it's it's annoying when when middle-aged white guys like me use a sports analogy, but I'm gonna annoy you. Right. So I'm a I'm a baseball fan and I live here in Washington, D.C. And in 2019, our beloved Washington Nationals baseball team ended up winning the World Series. But we started out in the doldrums, just so bad. One of the worst starts in the in franchise history. And the manager at the time, who had a very good team, but was way behind, said, OK, we're not thinking about the World Series. What we're going to do is we're going to go one and oh today. And I have that written up there. Go uh, 1-0 and o today. So good. Go 1-0 and o today. Davey Martinez, man. I got a bobblehead of Davey Martinez over there. And so, um, good. here, here we go. I'll show you my... Um, uh, I love it. And so, that is so good. And so that's, so that's honestly, John, that's, it's, it's like basically pick your projects carefully. That's an important part of your goal. Yeah. But then day to day, just like, just go 1-0 and o today. I'm telling you, I'm working my butt off trying to get the word out about this book right now. And... It, it, it's I'm, I'm tired i'm burnt out and every morning i wake up and say okay I'll, you know what you don't have to solve all the world's problems today you just have to go one and know today one and know today i i love it well i could talk to you all day only two last questions yes um one you've you're sitting in front of a massive wall of books which i love i've got a bunch of books behind me what would you say if you had to put four books on your mount rushmore mm. of books to read other than your own oh yeah um, what would yeah. you put up there yeah, I want to have to get my own on there. My, I, I really, my books really. Yeah, right. Like, but, yeah. but somebody's going to answer that question. Well, John, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, like, I asked somebody the other day what the best steak in Nashville is where I live, and they said, "Well, it's mine. I make a, an amazing." And I was like, "So you can't name a single restaurant that makes a better steak than you do in your backyard?" Like, come on, dude, come on. Yeah. So, what are the four books you'd put up there? Well, one of them would be Working by Studs Terkel, which is a, oh, which yeah. is a you know a book from the 1970s where he just went out and talked to a bunch of people about what their lives were like every day. So I think that would be a big part of it. You know, I actually think Mindset by Carol Dweck is another one that has really had a big effect on me and the way I think about myself and the way you know my wife and I have tried to um, talk to our you know talk to our kids. I think that's a really important one. I still think that Influence by Robert Cialdini is one of the greatest books of all time. Um, and it shocks me that not every single person on the planet has read it. And, um, what else? Um, is there a fiction book that you'd say? Yeah, hey, no, is- there, there, are, um, there are, um, 
I mean, this is going to sound somewhat cliche, but I think that if you pair Animal Farm and 1984, you realize that those things are as relevant today, if not more relevant than when Orwell yeah. wrote them 70 years ago. Yep. We just paid our kids to read 1984. We did a, a summer reading program because school was so off and on that we wanted to make sure they were reading the classics. So we picked out 15 and 1984 and they liked it. They were like, wait a second, this is... So I, I think that that's, yeah. a really, that's a really interesting answer. The, the last question is, where do people find out more about you? I want to help sell as many copies of this well, book. You. I think it's a fantastic book. The research is beautiful. It's super readable. It's so interesting. It starts out with so many good stories and it's threaded throughout. It's practical. It takes something fuzzy like regret and gives you real things you can do. And I think that came through in this interview. But where can people find out more about you, connect with the book? Where's the, What's the next step? Go to danpink.com, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com. And all, uh, you can find your one-stop shop for all things pink. We got... Um, information about this book about other books we got some videos all kinds of free newsletter all kinds of good stuff and book dan to speak i saw you years and years and years ago talk about drive at the oh. catalyst conference in atlanta oh. um, dan's a phenomenal speaker well, so love seeing him speak i i love that companies bring you in to talk to the people that work there about these topics that you're an expert in so well thanks that's yeah. a, another endorsement so dan thank you so much for joining me today i really appreciate it john I, I really enjoyed this conversation it's really like one of the most enjoyable conversations i've had in a while so thank you for that well fun man i appreciate you saying that see you dan Thank you so much for listening to my interview today with Daniel H. Pink. We'll put all the links in the show notes as always. And thank you for reviewing my podcast. If you're a podcast about goals, and, and this one is, it's right there. It's right there in the name. It's pretty obvious. This is about goals. You have to have a goal when it comes to reviews. And our goal is a thousand reviews. And we are so close. So thank you everyone who's been writing reviews. I really appreciate that. Make sure you subscribe or follow or whatever it is the kids are saying these days and keep those reviews coming. Last but not least, big thank you once again to our sponsor, Uguazi Macadamia. Visit buymacadamias.com and use the code John Acuff to get a free snack size package of roasted and lightly salted macadamia nuts with any order. That's it for this week. I'll see you next Monday. And remember, all it takes is a goal. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes is a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast. <laughs>